Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. Updates, analysis, and deep dives into warfighting, strategy, and leadership. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia. I'm talking today with Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer. Stephen is former US ambassador to Ukraine, also an affiliate at Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Stephen served for more than 25 years with the United States State Department, including as special assistant to the president and senior director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council from 1996 to 1997, as US ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000, and also as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs with responsibilities for Russia and Ukraine from 2001 to 2004. Stephen has written an excellent book on Ukraine-US relations called The Eagle and the Trident, US-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times. I see this book as essential reading for anyone who wants to understand the context and the build-up to the current war in Ukraine. In this book, Stephen draws on his considerable personal experience in the region in order to provide not only historical context, but also on-the-ground insight into the way in which US-Ukraine relations developed and evolved following the breakdown of the Soviet Union. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Stephen. I look forward to the discussion. I'm happy to be here. Before we get to the current moment in time, I'd like to go back to the years following the breakdown of the Soviet Union. Commentators have mentioned that Ukraine's decision to give up the nuclear weapons that were stationed in Ukraine following the breakdown of the Soviet Union as part of the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 was a mistake. And that if Ukraine had not given up those nuclear weapons, then we would not have seen the escalation of tensions with Russia and Russian incursions into Ukrainian territory. As someone who has insight into what was taking place on the ground during the 1990s in terms of US-Ukraine relations, how do you view that decision, the implications from that for the way in which U.S.-Ukraine relations then evolved and Ukraine's place in, let's say, the international order? Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Ukraine found on its territory the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. And that included about 1,900 strategic nuclear warheads that were designed, built, deployed to strike the United States. So first of all, there was an American interest in eliminating weapons that could have been incinerated, you know, every American city over 50,000 people three times over. Now, having said that, uh, I I can understand Ukrainians now who say, had we kept nuclear weapons, we might not have had this war with Russia. I've heard about it pretty much every every time I go back to Ukraine since 2014, because it's fairly widely known that I helped negotiate uh, the elimination of those nuclear weapons. But I think there are two questions. First of all, there was a question that the Ukrainians had among themselves about could they maintain the nuclear arsenal on their territory? And uh, I was told by a a fair and least senior Ukrainian official that they'd actually had this discussion back in 1992 and concluded that because the way the Soviet nuclear infrastructure was structured, most of the things that you needed to have were in Russia and not in Ukraine. 
And so it would have been very expensive for Ukraine in 1992, 1993 to begin building the infrastructure to support an independent nuclear force. So I think that's point number one. The second point, though, is that had Ukraine kept nuclear weapons, it would have had a very different set of relationships with the West. Uh, there would not have been uh, the special relationship between Washington and Kiev that was established in 1996. Things such as the Gore-Kuchma Commission, Vice President Gore and President Kuchma, a special commission to give high-level attention to U.S.-Ukraine relations. Kuchma was in the United States four times in 1997 alone. None of that would have happened had Ukraine kept nuclear weapons. I believe there would have been a similar uh, cool approach towards Ukraine by European countries. Ukraine would not have had a relationship with either the European Union or with NATO. And it may not have been quite the pariah that North Korea is today, but it would have been pretty isolated. And that would have also had economic impacts because Ukraine had difficult economic situation back in the 90s. Had Ukraine gone to the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development for low interest loans, my guess is that they would have found the Western executive directors voting against Ukraine. So there would have been some real political and economic costs to Ukraine back in the 90s. And if nevertheless Ukraine found itself in some kind of a dispute with Russia, Ukraine would have found itself alone. Mm -hmm. Not like the situation today where you've got many countries around the world being very supportive of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting. And it's sort of easy to oversimplify things in some ways in retrospect and say, well, if a country had have made this decision or made that decision, we would have seen a certain future unfold. However, when we actually look back at what was really happening in terms of the context at the time, things can be far more complicated in terms of the potential trajectories along which US-Ukraine relations could have evolved. Exactly. And in that situation, had Ukraine attempted to keep nuclear weapons, they would have had their crisis with, with Russia very early on. The nuclear relationship then between a nuclear Ukraine and a nuclear Russia would not have been stable because the Ukrainians did not have the ability to destroy all of the Russian nuclear weapons. For example, the Ukrainians could not get to uh, Russian nuclear weapons on board ballistic missile submarines at sea. Russia had the ability to destroy most or all of Ukrainian nuclear weapons. And so any kind of crisis would have been very unstable because of that kind of situation. As you said, uh, when you sort of look through what that alternative future would look like, there would have been some real costs to Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. And that's something I found very valuable in your book, that I came away from reading the book feeling that I better understood a bit of that complexity and nuance of the situation at the time. If we fast forward a little bit to the late 1990s, when you yourself were serving as US ambassador to Ukraine, what were your key reflections or key takeaways in terms of your understanding of the main opportunities and challenges for US-Ukraine relations? Yeah, I think when I left Kiev in uh, October of 2000, there were two big challenges I saw. One was, and this really only became apparent, I would say, in 1999 and, and the first part of 2000, was democracy was a little bit more tenuous than we had thought. Disappointment because the President Kuchma at the time in his 1999 re-election campaign had really resorted to the use of you know, administrative devices, control of the media to really slant the playing field. Now, in a way that wasn't horrible by post-Soviet standards, but it wasn't up to the standard that the Ukrainians had set for themselves when they said, we want to meet European standards for democratic elections. 
So I, I do remember thinking that one of the challenges for the United States was uh, until the next Ukrainian presidential election in 2004 was to find ways to help the Ukrainians maintain the ability so they could actually have a free and fair election uh, and then exercise their choice in 2004 for the next president. Of course, in 2004, uh, we saw the Ukrainian government try to slant that election that triggered the Orange Revolution. Uh, the second concern I came away with was on just on economic reform is that Ukraine had been slow. And I would argue, even to this day, they had been slow to put in place what I refer to as the critical mass of reforms that you need to unleash the real potential of the economy. And Ukraine's economy had a lot of potential, but a series of leaders, and it wasn't just in the 90s, but it continued really up to the present day, as I, I would argue that they still haven't put in all of those pieces necessary to reduce corruption, create rule of law, and, and open up full economic potential. And so some of those things back in the 90s, and I, and I do remember thinking that one of the things in the 90s that we probably didn't use was our leverage. We had a lot of leverage with Ukraine because we were asking them to do things that political leaders don't want to do. So for example, one of the things in the 1990s was Ukraine basically charged a flat rate for tariffs for electricity and heating and things like that. The consumers were paying nothing like the real cost of the energy. And that had a huge and very negative impact on the Ukrainian government's budget. At one point, an economist once calculated that the Ukrainian government was spending the equivalent of 4 to 6% of gross domestic product, subsidizing the provision of utilities to households. If you want to have a rational economic system, you've got to fix that. No government, though, wants to say, I'm going to raise everybody's prices because that hits the whole population. We perhaps could have been harder and pushed harder and put a Ukrainian government in a position where they can say, well, it's the Americans, it's the International Monetary Fund, it's the World Bank that's making us do this. And, they, and, they, and to their credit, they have made a lot of the changes now, but they still haven't, there's still some things that most economists argue that Ukraine still needs to do to get to the point where the economy can really begin to grow. And, and most people before the war would have said that in an economy in Ukraine state with the right environment, the right legal and regulatory system could be growing at 5 to 7% a year. That would have, I thought, brought real change to Ukraine. Of course, that's been derailed by the war, and we'll see how long they recover after the war is over. Mm -hmm. Thinking about those more structural economic reforms, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has actually nudged Ukraine much closer to the European Union, perhaps ironically. And we have seen a lot of support from European countries, obviously with some divergence, but broadly speaking, certainly supportive of Ukraine in this conflict, but also of helping to reconstruct Ukraine after the war concludes or after this current phase of the war concludes, whatever type of conclusion we see to that and whenever that happens. Do you think that actually we might see it easier for Ukraine to implement the kind of structural economic reforms that you were talking about or during that post-war reconstruction process? I think that's a good question. And I mean, at some point, this war will end. My own view is that when the war ends, there's going to be a sovereign, independent Ukraine on the map of Europe. What we don't know at this point is exactly what its borders will be. But the reconstruction period, there will be an opportunity to build back better and maybe address some of the issues. But there's also going to be, again, some tough questions to the Ukrainians, which is they now have a membership perspective that the European Union has given them, which for years the European Union did not provide. And it seems to me that Ukraine really is going to have to focus on two things. 
One is implementation. If you go back to the association agreement that the Ukrainians signed with the European Union back in 2014, after the Maidan revolution, you know, that's hundreds of pages long, and it reflects lots of changes that Ukraine should make in both its, its laws and its regulatory structure to basically make Ukraine more compatible with EU norms. And so implementation of you know dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of regulations, that's going to be required to get those in place. And, and that, that'll take some time, and that'll take a real push from a government, you know, both uh, the presidency, but also working with the RADA, their, their, their parliament, to really push those through and get that done. The second challenge for Ukraine is going to be probably tougher after the war, which is that Ukraine's going to have to find a way to really begin to grow the economy. And the thing is going to be that every year, the European Union has a certain amount of money, developmental funds that go to those countries that are lagging behind, for example, in GDP per capita. They, they sort of lag behind the EU standard. Those tend now to go mainly to countries that used to be in the Warsaw Pact or in Southern Europe. And my worry for Ukraine is if they don't have their GDP per capita higher, a lot of countries that might be prepared to support Ukraine will say, wait a minute, that kind of Ukraine in the European Union is going to soak up all those development funds. So Ukraine's got to implement uh, all the rules but then it's going to have to grow its economy to get to a point where the European Union and its members can say, yes, we can take in Ukraine, and that Ukraine is not going to sort of absorb all of the development funds that the European Union makes available to its members. Mm -hmm. So how do you see the full-scale invasion impacting U.S.-Ukraine relations? So we've seen the U.S. coming out as one of the strongest supporters of Ukraine, as well as some other sort of European countries, in particular Baltic states and the UK, etc. It's not the only one, Canada as well, but the US has certainly come out in strong support of Ukraine and provided assistance militarily and in other domains. Did that surprise you, the way the United States sort of galvanized around Ukraine after the full-scale Russian invasion, or was that something that you expected to see? Yeah. From the US perspective, um, What's going on in Ukraine? Part of it's about Ukraine. And, and it's a country that has a lot of bipartisan support in the American Congress, for example, and, and, and believe between presidencies. And part of this, I think, is and, and should be uh, going back to 1994, as we told the Ukrainians back when negotiating the elimination of nuclear weapons, that if the Russians violated Russian commitments to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, uh, not to use force against Ukraine, that we would be we would be there. We were careful to say we're not sending the 82nd Airborne, you know, but we will do things. And I think the sorts of things that we're now doing now with the provision of weapons to Ukraine and ammunition and the sanctions on Russia, that that meets the sorts of things we were talking about 30 years ago. But I think what you saw the administration was a little bit slow to move in February, March. And there was an expectation, an expectation that was held fairly widely in the West. And my guess is even among a lot of Ukrainians, that the war could be over fairly quickly. There was no doubt in my mind that the Ukrainians would fight. Hmm. But I have to say, I have been surprised pleasantly by how successful they were, particularly in the first two months of the Russian invasion. And so what you've seen then, I believe really beginning, say, late March, early April, uh, up until that point, the focus was on getting the Ukrainians weapons that they could use fairly easily, things like javelins, which they had some familiarity with, or stinger missiles, which are fairly easy to operate. But late March, early April, as the recognition said, and this could be a much longer conflict, then you saw the administration 
and the Pentagon begin thinking about, okay, what can we do in terms of more sophisticated weapons? And you just see now in the last two weeks, the effect of those, the HIMARS, the high mobility uh, artillery rocket systems, which can strike targets out to 85 kilometers within maybe three, three meters uh, accuracy. And it looks like in the last 10 days, the Ukrainians are using those with great effect to target both Russian ammunition dumps, but also Russian command posts. So I think the administration is cranked up. I would like to see the administration accelerate. I think there was one request from the Ukraine saying, well, we need 400 HIMARS systems. That's probably the entire American inventory of HIMARS. You know, but you know, they're, they're, making, they're doing a lot now with just uh, 8 to 12 systems. If they had 25 to 30 systems, that could have, I think, a real impact on the battlefield. So mm-hmm. it's been moving in the right direction. I'd like to see them do a bit more, a bit more quickly when it comes to uh, giving the Ukrainians the tools that they need to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And we are seeming to see some success with those HIMARS systems in Ukraine. So that's interesting and to see if more will be delivered. Yeah, and it's interesting to watch. I mean, the Russian military bloggers who actually conduct a fairly open discussion are beginning to reflect the fact that they are taking heavy losses because of HIMARS. Even in Russia, I think it's been recognized. But it also, I mean, it seems to me that in the administration, there's there's an understanding this is not just about Ukraine. But if, if that Russia wins in Ukraine, if Russia prevails, that makes the security situation in Europe much more shaky. And uh, again, I think another factor here is you know, what Russia is doing. It's, I mean, it really is a violation of a rule that goes back and has been generally accepted in, in Europe going back to 1970, is that you do not use military force to change borders. It goes back to the Helsinki Final Act of 1975. And there is some, a strong view, I believe, that you know, this is about defending that order, because if that rules-based order disappears, then does the whole series of relationships between uh, major states become just more anarchic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will certainly be interesting to see how that progresses. Thank you, Ambassador Pfeiffer. I really appreciate you having a discussion on the podcast today and sharing your insights and reflections. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.